0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. I'm Russell Brand. I'm, I am i suppose I'm the host, am I? I'm yep. the host of yeah. Under the Interview. Skin. interviewer. I'm the interviewer of Under... That doesn't make sense. This week I spoke with Elizabeth Burton Phillips. This is the founder of the charity DrugFam. Drug fam. work with families, friends and partners affected by someone else's addiction, including those bereaved by addiction. Liz was awarded an MBE in the 2017 Queen's Birthday Honours List for services to people who experience drug addiction. And their family. She lost her own son, uh, sadly, through addiction. And she's a beautiful, wonderful person. She's a friend of mine. Did you enjoy the conversation, Jen, or were you not really listening?
1: No, oh, I was listening.
0: Go on, then. What did you like? She's
1: nice. She reminded me of my mum.
0: I've met your mum.
1: Yeah. Do you think I'm right? No. Why?
0: I don't think she's like your mum. Your mum a lovely woman. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, no one's blaming her uh-huh. for what happened. No one's <laughs> <laughs> holding your mother responsible. No. For the appalling way that you, (laughs) appalling choices you've made (laughs) in life. Hey, so um, anyway, should we listen to them? Should we read out? Shall I read out some comments? Why don't you read the comments?
1: I don't know, because you like to read them, because you read them. Control? Yeah, and you're kind of reacting to them as you're listening to it,
0: aren't you? Okay. Here's one from Subtract. In the Midwest USA, like to talk about Joel Bakken. Joel Bakken was super smart, brilliant analysis of capitalism, corporatism, uh, of capitalism, the way that big corporations are behaving these days. Subtract go, in the Midwest USA, all local governments are becoming privately owned by corporate entities for profit, no rules, no oversight, no regulation. Blimey, mate. That's terrifying. How's that happening? Orwellian dreams. Who are these people you've picked? They're all like radicals. And you I
1: like, like it. Yeah, you like them. Of course I like them. I love them.
0: Okay. Orwellian <laughs> underscore dream th- with a Z. Thank you so much for having this guy on. Reminds me of the American Southern songs like I sold my soul to the company store. <laughs> That's what Joel Backner reminds me. I sold my soul to the company store. <laughs> it's quite... I'm more tired than I thought. Yeah, when but
1: it, once it gets to five... Is it's, it, I'm finished. Tw- I'm always worried.
0: Yeah. I'm worried. <laughs> Violet.Vabina... Who knew Russell Brown was so smart? <laughs> me, I just love how he put sentences together. Thank I, you.
1: I put a compliment in.
0: Why did you do that? What are you trying to do? Trick me?
1: <laughs> from is it a trick? No.
0: You're trying to bring You're me down. Trying dinner? to be nice. Why? Since you got me the toucan mug, is this a new, new era of M- Jenny I, May Maybe Finn?
1: I can compliment you via comments from other people.
0: I see. I see. Yeah. Compliments by proxy. Yeah.
1: It's
0: okay. Better, right. Well, try a normal compliment.
1: <laughs> I almost complimented you earlier. What I actually was... felt it in my chest. And it couldn't come you in. You felt
0: it, like emphysema. What was it going to be?
1: You should wear collared shirts more often. That's not a compliment. That's, a, that's, not a compliment. <laughs> that's an announcement. And it's a
0: rude one.
1: It's a rude announcement. Because it makes your jaw look good and it makes your shoulders look good. Can I tell
0: you something, Jen? You could not have a birthday card... They're adding its middle bit, you should wear collared shirts more often. And if you give that as a birthday card to, say, a cousin or someone that you see a couple of times a year, they would be confused, Jen. They wouldn't be complimented. But it was
1: a compliment because I was essentially saying it looked good.
0: Yeah, well, just say. Just say you look good.
1: But it's What a wolf whistle too, kill you? It's too vague. Anyone can say that. Can they? I say it so you know I'm saying something true.
0: I've met several of your family members. And can yeah. I tell you which the one I like the least? Me. Yeah, that's right, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> Little old you. GW says, The World Economic Forum Twitter account retweeted someone that tweeted about being critical about your videos. You're getting to them. Great job, R- Russell. <whistles> well, we'll all be dead in a week. <laughs> Great. I'd like to say... That Jenny May Finn is the mastermind <laughs> behind this content, whereas the rest of us are just dancing to her tune. And that Come. tune is river Dance. No. <laughs> right. Now, before we get into listening to this podcast, right, although this is part of the podcast, isn't it, Jen? Yeah. This is like we want you to join this mailing list alliance clique. If you join this mailing list, Nexus, someone suggested Nexus
1: yeah? is a good word. It's one of my favourites.
0: I like Nexus. <laughs> you don't think it's too like a nectar card?
1: No, I don't think about that at all.
0: You don't think about a nectar card? <laughs> no. Points of loyalty. Why loyalty do they
1: call it a nectar card?
0: Yeah, why do you want a nectar card? Like it's the nectar and you're a little bee sniffing around outside <laughs> of a Sainsbury's flower.
1: Flower. <laughs>
0: Sorry. You know, sniffing your little snoot round, picking up the pollen. Say flower power. Flower power. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you say it, flower power. Isn't it? That's right, isn't it? Flower power. Well, what do you think it is? <laughs> you can't even say click.
1: <laughs> click. Flower power.
0: Flower power. <laughs> you sound like or gummich. Okay, so. Listen, if you're not signed up to the mailing list, sign up to the mailing list. We send out all sorts of free content. We do Zoom calls. I shamelessly promote content at you. I've got a new book coming out, Revelation, only available on Audible. It's a good book. I speak about spirituality, awakening, sacredness. You'll love it. There's a link in the description. Get it. You get invites to free live events if you come to my excuse me, mailing list. You can learn well-being techniques, kundalini, all that. You'll be the first to hear about my upcoming events and projects. I sometimes have been offering to people if they can get 10 people, but Charlie says I've given myself away too cheaply because people are, this is actually working. People are signing up in their droves to get a Zoom call from old Russ. I'm going to spend my whole life working it off. Like if you forget your credit card and you have to wash the dishes in a restaurant.
1: What? you forget your <laughs> credit card, you have to wash
0: It's more in a sitcom than in real life. Oh, okay. But Right. I mean,
1: if you go out for dinner and you don't pay. That's right. <laughs> I don't meant mean you just forget it in general. <laughs> then you just wash the dishes. What do
0: you dishes. mean you forget it exists? Yeah, then oh, you just wash the dishes. What am I supposed to do at this point? Can I wash the dishes? You don't forget the protocols of the exchange of goods for monies. Yeah. You just haven't brought it. It's at okay. home. Okay. And did you think I meant that you'd forgot the concept? Well, that no, be that you you just forgotten where you put it? Like it's a sitcom where the main character goes to a restaurant. Yeah, but and they the say,
1: restaurant wasn't in the setup.
0: Wasn't it? No,
1: you just said that when you forget your credit card and you have to wash the dishes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe it's me that's mentally ill, Jen. Yeah. Don't say it that quick. <laughs> okay, so listen. Why don't you go to my ooob channel? For more spiritual videos and clips, I'm not. I refuse to say the letters "y" and "t" for the next, for just for a while. Check out my Oob channel for more spiritual videos and uh, clips from the podcast, and also, you know, really good videos about Bill Gates and things like that. It's like it's like a video channel by someone who's absolutely determined to be demonetized <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> Make sure to subscribe to get notified of new videos. I've also started a YouTube si- oop, oop, side channel called Awakening with Russell. Isn't that a lovely title, Jen?
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Why did you snort? Because <laughs> I just you think
1: sn- of waking up. Or
0: like, well, like in the morning. Yeah. It's not waking up with Russell. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> now I'm going to have to deal with this. It's Awakening with Russell. Okay. Awakening. Me and this person, you, the listener, me and you. Not you, Jen. (laughs) Do you even meditate, Jen?
1: Yeah, I did three times. When you're (laughs)
0: strolling around your fucking mansion like (laughs) Grey
1: Gardens,
0: (laughs) wandering around with a bowl of of cat food in a corridor. (laughs) That's what it's like. There are
1: dog bowls around with water in it that I don't. (laughs) Dog (laughs) bowls with water, are there? Yeah.
0: You haven't even got a dog, Jen, have you? Sometimes she comes over. You. Put out dog bowls no, in anticipation of a visit. She, she
1: might come over and maybe she wants some water. She actually doesn't really drink
0: water. So you've got bowls like little... I don't, little, know why. I don't I,
1: You might as yeah. well
0: put a goldfish in that or a tadpole or something.
1: Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I should get rid of them.
0: Awakening with Russell. Here you'll find... This new Oop, Oop channel is called Awakening Russell. You'll find he- videos here on meditation, yoga and wellness practices. Get in touch with me on social media if you want. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all those things. But now it's time for Under the Skin with Elizabeth Burton Phillips. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a oh, successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's that's exactly
1: right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told. And Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Liz, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin.
2: You're very, very welcome. It's a pleasure, Russell.
0: We're actual friends, aren't we?
2: We are. We are good friends.
0: Now, my daughter is currently here. Hopefully, she won't make too much noise. Certainly, she won't be on camera. You need to be quiet, little person. Um so Liz I, I became mm. interested in your work because you know obviously I'm a drug addict in recovery mm. and I'm really interested in what DrugFam does your organization DrugFam for people that aren't familiar with it can you tell us a little bit about what you do
2: Yeah of course yeah um I set DrugFam up back in 2006 um it's was as a result of losing one of my twin sons Nick Um, who sadly died by suicide because of his addiction to heroin, amongst other drugs. And um, as a mother who didn't understand addiction at all, who didn't understand it as an illness, I just knew that I wanted to do something as a legacy for him to support families who might be in the same position as myself. Mm -hmm. And um, we set up, I set up the Nicholas Mills Foundation, which is known as Drug Van, And we do three things which we really pride ourselves on, which is to be available for families and significant others whose loved ones are using drugs or alcohol, or more recently we have embraced gambling because we've seen a lot of that. And we also support the bereaved, of which sadly since lockdown, we're nearly at 70 bereaved family members. And we also do a lot of educational work in schools and prisons uh, through the play that's been adapted from my book, because I wrote the book, Mum, can you lend me 20 quid, what drugs did to my family. So it's all about supportingly supporting those in active use, the family members of those in active use sometimes they're using just drugs, sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes a combination of that and, and maybe gambling too, and then the bereaved and the education.
0: Do you think, have you seen a, an increase in uptake of your services since the lockdown?
2: Massive, massive Russell. We have, we keep all our data very, um, it's very important for us to keep all our data, rec- records of every call an email, and so on. And we've seen, I think the the recent figures are 72% rise in our phone calls since the 23rd of March. And in terms of number of deaths that have come to us since the 23rd of March to today, it's just marching up towards 70, 70 bereaved families.
0: So I suppose like, yeah, there's just more despair, more drug use.
2: Yes, I think it's, it's you know, the, the COVID has obviously impacted on family life, blown it apart, um, really tough.
0: What was it that made you, after you lost your son, and of course, it's only because I've spoken to you before that I'm not sort of, overwhelmed and shocked when I hear you say it. it's just because I've, obviously I know your story and we've spoken about it um, many times but what was it that um, how what was the process between suffering what must have been a, a tremendous loss and incredible grief to moving towards this process of um service and creating sort of the possibility for positive change for other people how did you undertake that
2: well you know in those days after Nicholas died, obviously I received a lot of cards, a lot of phone calls. And one day this card came through the post and it was written by a couple who I'd known through our local church. And they'd moved down to Devon and they'd heard about Nick because they knew he was trying so hard to get well. And it was heading headed, Blessings in Disguise. And I turned over and it's recorded in my book, how sometimes, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And it, it spoke about how this experience could be a blessing in disguise for me. And I looked at it and I remember thinking, that's a bloody cheek.
0: Yeah, I bet. Because like at that time, it must be impossible to even think like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was really tough. You know, I've got the card over actually in the drawer if you, if you wanted me to read the whole thing. But yeah. Um, no. I was a bit affronted and a bit upset and, you know, I, I looked at it and and then a few days later I sat in the conservatory in my house and I picked up the card again and read it and I just thought, hang on a minute, I can do something and it was that card that kind of gave me the impetus to turn what had happened round and to make Nick's life worth talking about. And perhaps his death was a blessing in disguise. And from that minute onwards, I've never looked backwards.
0: It's incredible, really. I must say there's, I think like a lot of people, I have this sort of, combination of awe and fascination with people that are like you that are able to turn tragic experiences into something that's socially val- valuable. I spoke to David Kessler recently who's a sort of a authority on grief and a writer on grief and he talked about um like Elizabeth Kubler-Rossi's work on death and the, the sort of famous stages of grief and how he sort of recently added the sixth stage meaning and purpose that when you can find meaning and purpose in in loss, it's a gal. It has a galvanizing and positive effect, and it sounds like that's what you're describing.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely spot on. I, you know, I have great meaning and purpose in my life um, because of what's happened, but I also have a wonderful life too um, because I have the blessing also of the other twin, the identical twin, who was also an addict, who now is a very happily married, abstinent has given me two beautiful grandchildren and a wonderful family life and all the lovely friends that I've met through this charity, of which there are many, many, many of them.
0: It's like a strange social experiment to have two twin sons, both drug addicts, one who tragically dies and the other who lives and becomes abstinent. I, I can't imagine the uh, how you uh, hold that in your head what is it what's your relationship like Simon and what is your relationship like with um, the memory of Nicholas?
2: Well you know he's my best friend and um, we held each other very closely on the night he found his brother dead because he sadly hung himself and on that night I'll never forget you know we we cradled each other in grief and um, forgiveness was so so important because I was very angry you know with what had happened and so on And we've just become the the best friends. On Friday, it was Nick's um, 17th anniversary. And we spent, because we couldn't be together, we spent an hour on the phone just laughing about wonderful times that, you know, we had with him and and the joy and gift of his life before the illness took him. And um, we remember him as Nick, uh, my son, Simon's brother. We don't bring up all those Difficult times. It's really important to remember the positive things, and my relationship with him is just with Simon. It's just wonderful.
0: Do you have an opinion on like drug regulation and drug legalization and those kind of subjects?
2: We don't. I personally don't know. I keep away from all of that kind of campaigning because our charity isn't about that. Our charity is about being there for the families whose lives are disrailed being there for the bereaved, being there to educate. And we use, you know, live by experience stories of other people, um, as well as myself and, and other people involved um, to try and educate young people to show that there can be consequences as a result of, you know, dangerous actions and risk taking actions. And so we keep well away from being involved in that kind of thing because it's not our bag.
0: Yeah, I understand Liz and I was like you, had your working life prior to your mission-led life was you is it right you were a head head teacher at school
2: I was a in a yes I was in I was a teacher that's right yes I was head of department in in a school and um I was I started in the ranks of being a teacher when I was 22 up in Liverpool in the toughest area of Liverpool which I absolutely do not regret it was a baptism of fire but it was the best thing could have happened to me it was really challenging and I spent 39 years as a teacher and uh, teaching kids from 11 all the way up to 18 doing GCSEs A all that kind of thing so I loved it absolutely loved it great one of my favorite places is being in the classroom especially if I'm doing school talks because that's my territory so I communicate with to my pupils I can be granny I can be mum I can be sister I can be auntie you know and they really open up to me
0: what age group did you used to teach most?
2: Uh, mainly um, 15, uh, the sort of 15, 16 year olds, the GCSE years, you know, the, those two years and the A-level years.
0: Do you have any memories of like, you, what your attitude towards drugs and what your experience was with drugs then as a sort of a teacher, seeing it, like around young people?
2: Well, you know, uh, I'm. Getting, getting a bit old in the tooth, <laughs> I'm in my 70th year, and I look back on those, those um, times in the 1970s. Do you know, when I was teaching in the 70s and the 80s, there was no education about drugs at the time. I was simply not aware, and we weren't prepared for that in the way that um, University Life um, prepared us for, for that particular role. Um so, so I do remember the introduction of what was called the P S A G lesson or the PSE lesson, personal social education. And I remember <laughs> we had to, we were required to teach about smoking and a lot of teachers kicked off about that because they said, you know, hang on a minute, I want to teach my biology and my chemistry and my physics and my maths and I don't want to teach about smoking, but we were required to do it as form teachers as part of our PSA, PSE lessons. And then, of course, it moved in time. It moved on to more and more about drug, drug and alcohol education over the years.
0: With your, your sons, were you like, were you aware of when they first started using drugs? What was their, can you remember that and how that unfolded?
2: Um, I can, Russell, yes. What I can say, first of all, is that I didn't know for a long time that they were experimenting because as a mum, you know, seeing your kids off to school in the morning, you say cheerio and, you know, have you got your, have you got your, you know, your homework and your PE kit and that kind of thing. And um, they were, it was just before they were 20 um, that they came to me and, and said, we have a problem. We are using heroin. And up until that point, I hadn't seen any physical evidence of anything that, as a mother, I would really understand because they had gone through school, you know, from 11 to GCSE years. And I was totally unaware that behind the scenes they were dabbling with, you know, um, probably pills and I know cannabis, that kind of thing, but I didn't know anything about it. It was very carefully hidden along with loads of other kids, you know, at the time, but it's only when they were offered um, a heroin spliff. um, That outside a pub, not very far from actually where you and I live in Berkshire, that life changed for them. And that heroin spliff led them to chasing the dragon and led them to injecting. Mm,
0: Yeah. Sort of like a, it's like a sort of a, public information commercial like my own drug use was sort of similar like sort of started with recreational drug use and then just escalated yeah um did you feel ashamed or like that you had failed as a parent
2: absolutely yes as soon as i knew the first thing i did was go into uh rescue mode in the sense of right okay i can't tell anybody this i can't tell my husband I can't tell my school, I can't tell the parents, I can't tell the teachers, I've got to keep it a secret. Because if anybody gets to know, I'll lose my job. Mm. Society will judge me as a failed parent and I've got to keep it a real secret. And um, I felt myself in a huge place of isolation and loneliness. And actually I was mirroring their their behavior. Oh, wow. And you know, their, their, their secrecy, I copied that behavior. Because um, they were trying to keep it from everybody else as well, and so was I.
0: I've never heard it described like that before. That's just, well, that, so you sort of jumped into that dynamic, but 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 mostly because of your own fear of judgment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Jumped into the same dynamics, and you know, the relationship obviously ch- changed. The, the knowledge of knowing that they were injecting drugs changed me completely. In the sense that I wanted, as a mum, to help them so desperately get well, and I thought, well, if you know, if I put them into rehab, if I do this, if I do that, I can fix it.
0: <laughs> yeah, just it like solution, just solution. What what year was it that this was all happening? Like what?
2: Um, I'm just trying to think back now. So. He died, Nicholas died when he was 27. So back that was pre-2004. Um, so in it, predominantly in the 90s.
0: Yeah. I suppose in the 90s, like uh, intravenous drug use and HIV was still sort of, and obviously the hepatitis and all those kind of things were still a concern. Yes.
2: Yeah. And it's been, you know, a huge shift in the way the whole world looks at addiction now as an illness at that time there was almost an attitude of self-imposed choice and it's your own bloody fault and you take the consequences. And, you know, I I really did feel that I had failed as a mother.
0: It's really difficult to get beyond that, even as a person that's sort of quite immersed in the world of addiction because of my own addiction and continuing work with other people, that, you know, whether it's like, Like, I had a friend who took their own life, like, who was, in my opinion, drinking in an an addictive way and ended up taking their life. And I still feel, I feel things like, uh, like, oh, I I should have been able to do more. And I still sometimes feel like with people that are drug addicts, even though I know they're using right now, that I sort of want to say, well, just stop. Just stop doing it. Like even though that my own experience, both personally and sort of, uh, you know, and with other people I've loved, it sort of tells me that that's that is not right. Have you have, have attitudes changed?
2: I do believe that um, through our charity, certainly um, attitudes have changed. Um, in that people, parents, family members who come to us if they've got a loved one using whatever it is, that they know that there is compassion there is kindness, there is understanding, there is absolutely no judgment. All the emails and letters of thanks that we get, you know, really evidence that we have done something very, very important as a legacy to Nick, that they don't have to feel that there's any stigma involved and that we care, we deliver real care.
0: So you're speaking to like grieving parents and grieving sons and daughters and relatives and stuff like that.
2: Yes, as well as as well as the many families that have got somebody in active use as well. So Mm. when, for example, we're open seven days a week, 365 days a year from nine till nine on our phone lines. Mm. And you don't know on the phone lines who's coming, what's coming. It could be a bereavement, it could be a mum worried about a teenager, it could be a father worried about his granddaughter, it, a whole range of things. It's You can't predict what's coming and every obviously we have our volunteers and staff are very carefully trained in how to answer calls uh, and how to support people uh, both inactive and uh, bereaved as well.
0: What do you advise when people are in active addiction then?
2: Well, we talk to them. A lot of them are, what can I do? What can I do to help? What can I fix it? What can I do? Should I send them to rehab? Um, and we talk, we talk about the importance of boundaries. And, you know, if you've got a son or a daughter that's bringing drugs into the house, using the property as, you know, a place to, to session or using the house to deal we talk to them about the boundaries and how, you know, they've got to rethink their, their own self-care. We talk to them about not rescuing and not enabling.
0: Well, do you tell them, don't you, do you tell them then don't let them use drugs in your house?
2: We enc- yes, we do. We don't, we don't say you must do this and you must do that. We say it in a, a very honest way. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we, we do say that it's your choice, but We have a little thing called the the seven C's, of which the three most important are that, remember, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, and you can't cure it. And if you can get your head around those things, then you can start to take care of yourself and communicate with us as a charity, and, and that will help you to rebuild your life. And it works, you know. It take that's why we have our groups because, you know, we all of them are obviously on Zoom at the moment. But it's helping them to understand those very important things that, you know, they didn't cause it, they can't control it, and they can't cure it. And so many times I've said I've said that, and other all our all our team and staff members say it as well.
0: Do you have you have support groups? Do you for people that are have a relative that's using drugs, and then support groups, presumably around bereavement.
2: Yes, we do. Yes. Um, So our support groups are, um, for active are in the Thames Valley area and in Peterborough. We also now have national groups because of COVID. So people can come in from whether it's Scotland or Cornwall or whatever. So we have those predominantly in the evenings. Um, They're usually an hour and a half to two hours long. They've got a trained facilitator in there. For example, I myself use, I'm a facilitator for the group that's in Whitney in Oxfordshire. And um, we have a very, very strong group there. Um, Mutual support um, and some fantastic recovery stories as well. It's really great um, to to hear those recovery stories.
0: Are they well attended, these groups?
2: They are. They are well attended, yes. Um, We usually have a good... um, stretch my group is sometimes as many as 14 um, which is you know when you're trying to manage that quantity of parents or family members um, on a zoom call that's over a period of you know a couple of hours that's that's enough but a physical group there is potential for for there to be to be more
0: and you have groups all over the country
2: we do we do yes yes so they're running on um, Monday nights, um, n- nearly every night of the week. I think it's set fr- Friday and Sunday mornings as well.
0: So how? What is the the training that your staff are going through when they, like as you say, they could be picking up the phone at any moment to be, you know, told that someone's died and the kind of level of grief and despair that people might be conveying? How how do you, how do you train people for that?
2: Well, we have a lady who's dedicated to training, um, and she. Takes all volunteers through a process of training, and they listen into calls, and um, obviously with the agreement of the person calling in. And um, because of her experience, she had many, many years as a director of Samaritans. Um, she knows very much so you know very many things about um, how to answer the calls. Uh, whereas Samaritans is much wider in in the type of call ours is dedicated to drugs and alcohol. So she will um, spend time with them um, and eventually letting them take the calls where she will listen in to a point where they are ready to fly solo, so to speak. And in addition to that, we obviously have to teach them about safeguarding. It's very important because you you know safeguarding of young children has to be taken into account as well. And we have somebody who's a safeguarding,
0: uh, what does that mean? If so, what there's there's some issues where what where various social services might need to get involved.
2: Yes, indeed, that's right. Yes, yeah.
0: What like if a drug addict's in control of a kid, for example.
2: Yes, it it could be. You let's say, for example, you might you might get a, a mum call in or email. We get a lot of emails, um, and they're talking about you know, uh, my partner is. In addiction and I've got three children they are seven nine and eleven I, I just need so much help Um, I, I don't know what to do and um, the children are not aware but maybe the oldest one might be becoming aware and can you advise me on what to do and we obviously take them through the processes of what needs to be done to protect the mum and to protect the children as well and and work with them it's not about you know going behind their back and reporting them or anything like that it's about working with them to support them
0: um all right so you never inform social services without the consent of the sort of service user as it were
2: that's right yes
0: well that must be a bit difficult sometimes hey you're dealing with people that are in very complex situations but you know you have an obligation to them
2: yes yeah it's 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 can be very tricky and very complex um it's not always that there are our children involved it might be for example a grandfather a grandfather might ring about his own son or daughter or family members who are drinking using cocaine gambling that kind of thing and the impact that it's having on the wide family on his own wife the grandmother on you know, adult members as well as perhaps younger members. But as a charity, we work predominantly with the adults. We don't work with under-18s um, because there are other organizations that do that. So um, uh, our specific mission is with 18 and above.
0: People are always asking me, what, like, you know, it's one of the things I most commonly ask, what should I do, my friend, my child, my parent? Is a drug addict, he's using drugs in a way that sort of worries me. What shall I do? What shall I do? And, like, in a way, I always end up saying there's not that much you can do, you have to look after yourself. Like, you know, like, and what do you do? What do you do when people, like, don't want to change? You know, what do you do when people don't take on your advice? What do you, like, cause that, for me, this seems, like, real common. People find it hard to change. People find it hard to take on different habits. And like you said, with your experience with your own sons, you, you kind of entered into their dynamic rather than them entering into yours as it were around the secrecy and that
2: yeah i understand what you're saying yes i mean sometimes when you talk to people certainly when i've done phone duty you know i I hear my story often being mirrored in you know keeping it a secret the rest of the family don't know um that that kind of thing and then when you talk to them about the options and choices that they've got um sometimes you will you'll get a sort of quiet response that didn't actually realize they've got a choice themselves and then when they think about that choice it's really scary for them it's not something they go necessarily oh yeah of course I'll stop enabling I'll stop rescuing I'll stop doing this I can't bear them living on the streets I can't bear them this that the other it's it's sometimes a work in progress with them, Russell. And it, it's when they've been in it entrenched in, if you like, addicted to the addict for all those years, it can be a t- really tough to make changes. But the evidence would show that when the family member changes, it can also bring the change in the person using. Because suddenly they haven't got the bank of mum and dad or the reliability of being rescued and enabled anymore
0: wow so they don't realize that they've got options those options are often things like stop enabling and stop enabling probably means don't give them any money yeah don't l- let them use your house unless they're sort of not using or something and like so i suppose you're trying to create conditions where they change i always when i'm dealing with addicts you know where I, where i do have more experience i make it clear that i'll help you change but i won't help you stay the same i won't give you money and things like that because that's me i'm helping you to carry on but like but imagine it's really i can't i cannot imagine what it must be like when it's sort of once removed like that because i know when i've had experiences with people i really love or care for i get sort of a bit frantic and like i really want to get a handle on it you know and drag them about somewhere a bit of dragging I think is what dragging and chaining, drag them to somewhere, chain them to something. These are the kind of solutions. but there's no evidence to suggest that dragging or chaining is successful.
2: There's absolutely none. And the amount of parents, particularly mums that have said to me, it's, it's, I'd like to lock them up in a bedroom for six weeks and that will sort them out. And, um, you know, okay. They'd rattle along for a, a while, but um, it's, it's actually, helping our family members to understand that the desire for change and to recover and get themselves well, has got to come from within the person using. And that's a big deal for the family member to get their head around. And because they're so busy managing their addiction, the the loved one's addiction, that the, the, the letting go is a real toughie.
0: You use an interesting phrase that they're addicted to the addict. What do you mean by that?
2: I mean that um, they can't let go of their addict. I, I was absolutely like that. And we hear it all the time that they can't let go emotionally and psychologically of the addict. And, you know, because their son or daughter might go and steal to get money for drugs or might do something Unpleasant to get money for drugs, they'd rather give them the money themselves. And so to say, stop enabling, stop giving the money, um is a real big deal. And that's what I mean, addicted to those behaviors.
0: Right. Because it's compulsive. They can't stop it. They're doing it without thinking. Yeah. I mean, you can understand that if people, because I guess you're alluding to sex work and crime and all that kind of stuff that's sort of commonly goes uh, along with addiction so like if I was calling up drug fam or you now and saying like a friend of mine uh, is using drugs what should I do what's your like what's the what do you run through with people when you're making this diagnosis?
2: Well first of all um, it's it's about helping that caller to understand that if they're in a very difficult place emotionally themselves um, it's about helping them to find their own emotional resilience and looking after themselves and putting themselves before the addict, that's the first thing, Mm -hmm. because often they're so worn down with things that have gone on emotionally, financially, psychologically, they're not strong. Mm -hmm. So we talk them through that and how we can work with them to help them in group, one-to-one, on a Zoom call, all of those kind of things. And then we talk to them about um, the services that may be available, for the addicts which could be pointing them to which will be pointing them through to say for example in the area um, that we leave, we live in in Berkshire, Oxfordshire, the local drug and alcohol services um, where let's say it's a you know 29 year old person addicted to crack and alcohol um, where they would need to go to get help for themselves and it's about signposting them to tell their addict, where they need to go to get the the help
0: I see what about like uh what's the I mean I know you can only speak about your own experience of course but what my sort of understanding is is that funding is deteriorating all the time in these kind of areas is that your experience
2: unfortunately it is yes uh, that's very much so I mean we don't we don't get any government funding at all we rely Uh, very much on fundraising (laughs) which didn't happen last year at all as you can imagine Um, and I think the services are being drastically cut for you know financial reasons for the services both for addicts and and what services there are for families Um, you know one of the things obviously I I should point out that we always tell family members about you know the fellowships because The fellowships are so, so important for the addicts to use that it's, and they've never, many of them have never heard of AA, CA, NA, that kind of thing, because it's a whole new experience too, for them. So we do give that information as well as the services for, you know, drug and alcohol.
0: Yeah, twelve-step groups, like as you say, they're for, for like like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. And what do you think about like the codependency and Al-Anon groups that are sort of specifically for, uh, you know, the kind of people that I imagine are using drug fam?
2: It's difficult to say because um, you can you can become codependent um, on those kind of groups, but we, what we say to our family members is that we're here for as long as you need us. And what we see is people coming to a point, particularly when they've been bereaved perhaps, where they don't need to have our services. They come to a place of peace and a place of acceptance both in active and improvement, that they don't need perhaps to come to group on a weekly basis, or they may prefer just to have a telephone support call or a Zoom call, that that kind of thing. So it's not about you know, and if you like creating codependency on drug fam, we have so many <laughs> callers that you know it's just important that we teach, we we work with each individual person in the best way we can so some some people may come in on a call or come in on an email and may never come to a group they're happy with that kind of communication there are some people that can only talk on they only communicate on email about how they feel and that's their way and we've got dedicated um, staff and volunteers who can do those kind of emails very experienced in in that whole area
0: Liz, it says that you contributed to research by Bath and Sterling Universities that led to sort of guidelines for professionals. What, what, what were those contributions?
2: Well, I, what I did was um, I was consulted by um, a gentleman called Peter Cartwright, who is actually our supervisor, who's just recently um, uh, written a book, which has now been published about how to support people through a drug-related death or alcohol-related death. And um, he contacted me um, several years ago and asked if it, I'd be part of a um, programme of how professionals should be working with people who are in this position. Um, because and when I mean professionals, I'm talking about, you know, the, the other side of the fence, not our side of the fence. The professional drug and alcohol workers. How you communicate with them. Those kind of things. And it was a real privilege because I went to meetings down in Bath and I met people from a whole range of organisations. There's a place. There's actually um, uh, a faculty in the University of Bath called the Centre for Death in Society. And they do a lot of research into how people cope with bereavement and that kind of thing. And Peter Cartwright is also a specialist in that area too. So it was to be able to work with them and give thought and input and so on.
0: Is that man, Peter, who I met that time, was sort of quite tall and I think I cried?
2: You did. That's the guy. Yes, you did. Yes. Uh, he was leading the conference, and uh, the, the, the main facilitator it's he's a quite remarkable man um and a very very good supervisor for all of us because it's very important that we look after ourselves you know we're dealing with some very emotive stuff incidentally Russell can I just say something that's really really important as well you remember when you came to that conference do you remember hearing young James Sabin tell his story the young lad yeah I do yes and um he, um, he wanted me to tell you, bless him, um, he's, he's now our Junior Ambassador and it's amazing. He's just done a whole hour's recording this week, uh, which I'd love to send to you um, on what it's like to be a Junior Ambassador for, for Drug Fam. And he's actually um, skydiving out of a plane for us, I think on Saturday, the 8th of April with his brother his other brother, Phil, because he lost his older brother when he was only, I think, only nine. And he just asked me if I'd tell you that and that you'd give him some words of support. <laughs>
0: oh, that's really lovely. Will you uh, tell us a little bit about, if it's appropriate, James's story?
2: Yes, um, James and his, his family, um, lovely, happy family, um, it has a brother called Phil and... They had a, uh, an older brother and he died of an overdose, I believe. And um, his mum is now one of our fantastic volunteers um, on the helpline because we've supported her through and the family through the, the grief. And they live in, in uh, Yorkshire.
0: What does James do as a ambassador? Isn't he like about 14?
2: He's 17 now. And do you know... He is becoming a wonderful spokesperson for us at a 17-year-old age range because having lived experience, he has developed an intelligence to communicate with schools, with his peers, and to talk to them about what can happen because he sees the evidence of drug use all around him as a young person. So he's passionate to lead from his experiences in this ambassadorial role for us. And so, you know, he's he's going out giving talks. He's raised funds for us. Um, He's spoken twice at our conference and he's, you know, just so highly respected by um, so many young people and many schools that he's been involved in. He actually raised money to bring the play that's been adapted from my book to his school. Um, You know, he's done things like, you know, packing bags in Tesco's and. Um, cycling, afternoon teas, everything you can think of to raise funds, supported by his lovely mum as well and and the family, and um, he's just passionate through his lived experience of the pain of losing his his older brother.
0: I, I remember when I attended that conference that I felt very, um, like felt a bit sort of delirious because I knew that everybody there had sort of was there as a result of some unseen you know, and in many of the cases now, deceased, you know, loved one, it made me feel kind of a bit disoriented and lost and, you know, how close death is and that it's not abstract and this is reality for a lot of people it feels uh, to me that your own journey Liz about around that loss has been about instead of uh, uh, avoiding it fully embracing it wearing it exploring it examining it learning about it the seeing how other people can be helped through yeah. through unavoidable let's face it you know unavoidable suffering unavoidable suffering and how we can communally help one another through that it's very interesting how it, grew out of your experience Uh, do you believe in God have you always believed in God I guess I feel like you do
2: yes I have a faith Russell I do have a very a very strong faith um I didn't think that I had during the times that both my sons were in addiction and I used to have some very serious conversations with God during that time. And I wrote about, I write about it in the book. And I I often say, I often said, as I lay down to go to sleep, you know, why don't you give me a sign that all of this is going to be, it's going to come to an end. Um, and, you know, give me some hope, please, if you wouldn't mind, you know, if you, if you're a, if you're a God that really, really can see and feel the pain that I'm in, do something to help me. Uh, And I prayed about that for a long time. And when Nicholas died, as I said to you, for me, the interpretation of the sign was the blessing in disguise card, which spoke about how death can sometimes be a blessing in disguise. And as a result of that card and an understanding of what it's like to be the mother of somebody in addiction, I do have a very strong faith um, of a higher power uh, and I embrace all faith. And uh, I have a very spiritual side of me. I also have a really silly side of me, which I I think is very important to have a good sense of humour. But I do have a very strong spiritual side as well.
0: Is it something that you're explicit about in when you're talking about sort of solutions to the problems of loving someone who's in that kind of situation do you, are you explicit for example when dealing with someone on the phone or whatever about the nature of faith and god and stuff because i know it can be kind of a bit of a tricky subject
2: yes it can be it can be um i it's very it's very important not to ram faith down anybody's throat and we as a charity would never do that but often people talk about their faith quite if you like openly or not and they'll say they'll say i do have a faith which helps you know i go sit in the park and talk to god or i go to church and talk to god and some people will say i don't have a faith at all and i wish i had a faith um and so we have to take each individual family member as we find them um and if they want to talk about about faith and and spirituality then we will respond to that but. In the first instance, I would have to say most of the time these days, um, the the people who contact us are just so desperately worn down and so worried that they are going to lose that person, that that person is going to die and not get well and have normality in their life, that that's not necessarily the key thing at the time that they come to us.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, that obviously makes sense. I was just thinking about it in my... I think, right, if something is sort of um, palpably part of the solution like a faith in God, a faith in high power, spiritual principles and ideas, how you navigate the space of like not just saying you know like because there are people that are vehemently uh, atheist or you know and then there's of course lots of lots of different faiths and ways of identifying religiously but I was just wondering how significant part of your own, let's say i don't know recovery or journey or however you refer to it is because of your principles your principles of faith and my sense is, is that it's quite significant and if a significant part of your own um solution is not something that can be overtly discussed i wondered how you deal with that uh,
2: just on my own personal level
0: yeah because like i feel like with me with Addiction, say like, look. I, I feel like with addiction, you don't need to believe in God, and certainly don't need to believe in a particular God, to uh you know get well. But it does help to have a belief or faith in something a higher power than yourself. Yes. And if someone doesn't believe in God, like I do, think I find myself saying, "How's that working out for you?"
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I get you. I get what you're saying um and it's tough for them if it's not working out for them you know they have to find a way and sometimes they don't
0: yeah i suppose it's just
2: it, it, it is tough you know <laughs> i think people find different strategies of coping and um if there's a if there's a spiritual belief or a spiritual um if you like crutch for them um that's great not something we would say like you know you've got to go to church or anything like that but it's, it's great if it's naturally there but people might find other means other strategies and it could be that might be for example in exercise walking oh. um all sorts of things i know people who love going to the gym and they get very kind of addicted to exercise as well um to help them feel you know their endorphins and make them feel well in themselves because it's about mental well-being
0: yeah do you have like you know because I spoke to a few people that've got issues like one person who had lost a child recently I spoke to you about her and a friend of mine who's got sort of fam issue you know a living member of their family with drug issues and you know I suppose um I'm just. This for me is a very interesting and important area. I think it affects so many people, and I think it's going to. My sense is it's going to affect more and more people. And I know that you're running your organisation on donations and using volunteers. And I think that that's really important because, in a sense, you can't pay people for what they give in an area like that. But obviously, I'm also mindful that you do need financial support to keep the you know to keep the phones on, you know, as it were
2: yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's very important that we you know we're hoping in 2022 now i think it will be that we will be able to have um you know two or three things that we've done annually in previous years to raise funds the the lottery have given us some funding some covid funding because you know we we were just we are just so so busy so we've had some some covid funding there and and so on but um it's very important um, that people um, are are good and kind to us, you know. And it's nice to see that you get checks in, um, you know, whether it's a tenner or whether it's a lot more. It, it's it's lovely that people care enough to do that, uh, and we're so grateful. So, you know, philanthropic donations, de- donations from. Anybody who is willing to support us are so, so
0: welcome. Liz, thank you so much. I mean, it's lovely talking to you as always. It really, really helps me to know that people can not only recover but thrive after experiencing personal tragedy and sadness. I'm very grateful to you for the work that you do for drug addicts and people affected by addiction and in you know, in in all of its forms. So I'm, uh, if there's anything I can do to help you, you let me know and please you know please accept again my gratitude and thanks for everything you do.
2: Okay, is it okay just for me to add the number of the
0: Yeah, put it in. Put in anything you want.
2: Okay, so we can just put in the 0300 888 3853 is our telephone support line that's from nine till nine seven days a week and email us on office at drugfam.co.uk and um, if you want to make a donation of any kind um just get a hold of us through office at drugfam.co.uk or look on our website where you can donate to uh my 70th anniversary fundraising campaign (laughs) 70th anniversary (laughs)
0: 20th oh, birthday um, oh, fundraising birthday. campaign,
2: or there's things like PayPal, Just Giving, you know, all of those kind of things. It's all on our website.
0: We'll put a link to all of those things in our promotion around this podcast. And thanks, Liz. Thanks for everything you do. And I know I'll be talking to you a lot more because you know, drug addiction is not going anywhere.
2: It's not. It's not a nine to five problem, is it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> nine to five. Yeah, that is a real problem when it's in those hours, but it goes way beyond them.
2: That's right. Yeah. Hey, Russell, thank you so much. And you know what? It's lovely to see Demi- 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 Uh Demaya. Demaya, Demi- Yes.
0: She told me that you had helped her and that you'd met up with her before.
2: Yeah, I, it was lovely. I met her at the um, D2 Recovery Cafe in, in Henley and uh, another gentleman called Leo, who's part of our team now. Um, so just lovely to to see her. It's a great surprise. I looked at her and I thought, do I know you don't? I know you. Yes, I do. I remember. Lovely, lovely girl.
0: She's a brilliant young person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, th- Thank you so much. Thanks again, Liz. Thank you,
2: Russell. And lots of love to your wife and kids. And, uh, you know, maybe I can pop over and see you for a couple after all of this.
0: Please, God. Yeah, I would love that. Thank
2: Thanks. you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Elizabeth Burton Phillips. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets Hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my community. Nexus, I think is the word we're using at russellbrand.com. Not a Nectar card, though. Gain exclusive mailing list only news and video content. You've got to belong to this community. We want direct access to you. We're going to be back next week with Merlin Sheldrake, who I've already just spoke to, and he's just the absolute sweetest thing, a beautiful 2 hair head of hair like Dionysus. He's absolutely gorgeous. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this conversation with Liz Burn phillips Why not listen to some other episodes? You can do that. You can listen to Gabor Mate. He's talking about addiction, compassion. You can listen to Fern Cotton. She's talking about mental health. Why did you choose these two people?
1: For those two reasons. Okay. (laughs) And keep checking my
0: (laughs) channel for new videos. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from me, Old Russ, only on Luminary.